Hey there, I'm Vicki Howell. Welcome to episode 11 of Craftish, a podcast for conversations with creative types from all walks of crafty life. So I recently decided to get my big girl blogger pants back on by stopping the pattern I've slipped into over the past couple of years of solely taking photos on my iPhone. And my new camera just came in the mail, and so as soon as I learn how to use it, you can expect to be dazzled by my craft project photography, or at least mildly interested. Fortunately, there's a Creative Live course I'm about to dive into that's focused on the exact camera I bought, so I have pretty high hopes that I'll be an expert by the end of the day, which seems totally reasonable. Anyway, I've had the craft of photography on my brain these days, which brings me to this week's guest, James Beard award-winning photographer Jody Horton. From former president's portraits to food blogs, Jody's lifestyle photography has been featured internationally. He's traveled worldwide to work on campaigns ranging from Jack Daniels and Ritz-Carlton to Ferrari and the Food Network, capturing with his camera the essence of each experience. And... Back when I could still afford him, he also did the photography for a couple of my knitting books. Jody and his family are also some of our family's closest friends, so it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce him to you now. Friend, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I've been around you, obviously, many times, but in totally different situations, at parties, on sets, both video and photography, um, in smaller gatherings. And I've noticed, regardless of where you are, whether it's work or social, you seem to approach the situation in the same way. You're always very much interested in the people around you, whether or not you know them at all, or if they're just somebody walking into your life. And you really delve in a way that I haven't seen very often um, into finding out people's stories. Is that the impetus for you for your creative process? Or is it just inherently who you are? Hmm. I I haven't given that that much thought, but I I guess that's certainly an aspect of it. Um, I think that um, really, I guess I've thought about it more in terms of, um, knowing what people are passionate about. I feel like that probably more often is something that I'm at least consciously drawn to. I think if people are, are doing something that they're passionate about, that that can be really compelling to try to, to capture, um, in some way, whether it be a, an, ed- an editorial or documentary type of project or even a commercial project. Um, so when I think about what would drive me abstractly, I would be more likely to move um, or to, to, to describe my interest as, uh, as being wanting to connect with people that feel strongly about what they do and passionate about what they do um, rather than being necessarily inherently interested in like any person, I guess. <laughs> I don't know how that sounds. I don't know. I think you are interested in any person, though. I've seen you, you know, talk to people about whatever, you know, talk to my husband's dad about, you know, where he lives and what it's like there and what the culture's like there. And you weren't, you weren't scouting him for a project. You just seem genuinely interested in people. And maybe you're not even conscious of it, but it seems like you're always delving to find little bits and pieces. That's probably true. I, I guess that's, you know, that, um, I guess that general curiosity, um, led me to study anthropology eventually. Um, I guess it's kind of inherent within an interest for, um, for language to some degree, like just communicating and, um, kind of understanding little nuances of things are interesting to me. Um, gosh, you know, I think I'd have to, to get into more specific examples before, before I could maybe get a handle on where that comes from exactly. But you have a degree in anthropology, but really it's a specialty of anthropology, correct? Well, yes, it's a, uh, the degree was in, um, in cultural anthropology, I had a, a specialization within that specialization of, um, of visual anthropology, um, but I think that most people probably don't 
have this like anthropology as a whole can encompass archaeology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would be, you know, the study of, of human culture. So that that's pretty broad still, obviously. And then this, the subspecialty of visual anthropology kind of has two parts. It would be, it, it could be interpreted, I guess, in two ways. One, uh, visual anthropology can refer to just the medium um, with your that that one might be working in. So that would most mostly applied anything that I could do that that was anthropological or quasi anthropological in its nature, and it can also refer to using uh, visual mediums that might be um, you know culturally generated as the thing that is studied, and that might mean, for instance. Uh, studying um, like stitching patterns, uh, for instance, that are traditional, or the way in which you know some material good was was made uh, traditionally, and what sort of meaning it might have within the process, or you know what um, what patterns have have been accepted, uh, what symbols it might embody, that type of thing. Right. Is that, is that very clear? Yeah, no, purpose? absolutely. I, I'm just curious um, to know if you, I'm curious to know if you've always been curious. Were you a curious child? I think so. Um, yeah, you know, I think probably maybe even more as a kid, I probably was a kid that was asking a lot of questions and was um, trying to soak up, not, you know, just in general, soak up knowledge around him. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's accurate. I don't know if it was, you know, I was uh, <laughs> to an extreme in, in that manner, but yeah, I guess, I, you know, I can't, almost can't imagine really like what, what life would be like if you weren't curious. I mean, it's like, that would be, it. when I think about my own boys, I think, you know, there's no excuse in the world to ever be bored because there's so many things to be interested in. It, probably more than anything, that that can be. I guess now you're saying that that could be something that's driving to my work, but it probably was in many ways something almost to overcome in terms of finding some type of focus yeah. uh, in a career because I'm, you know, probably. By 10 years ago, let's say, I'm 43, 10 years ago, I would have, if someone had said, well, what do you, what do you want to do? Like, what, what's your career going to be? I was still really struggling with that and still trying to figure out what direction I would go in. And, you know, I was interested in music. I was interested in documentary film. I had interest in, in, um, in graphic design, architecture, writing, and like, you know, in an, in a, ideal world, you know, we could all live long enough lives to be able to realize all of the things that might interest us fully. But I had to, to truly make like a, a concerted effort to try to narrow what I would theoretically do and like what I would be interested in to something that was more finite. And I I really had to, to work hard to say, okay, I'm just going to try to focus on, on this, pursuit of photography, even though photography itself is really kind of a cheat because you, you get to, to delve into these different, um, you know, whatever it it may be that you're interested in and, and kind of explore that for, for little, little periods of time. But even in, in specializing in that very flexible medium, it was, it was difficult to come to that level of commitment with it. I mean, I don't think that's a cheat. I think it's like well played, my friend. I mean, you get yeah. a little bit of all of everything by 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 the career that that you've created for yourself. And I want to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But I right. wanted to touch a little bit on what you were talking about as you know, curiosity being the cure of boredom. And I think that that rings so true for any person who's creative. And it it makes me pause and believe that at the very core of creativity, whatever that ethos is, that it starts with curiosity. Do you find that? If you're creative, if you're curious, you're going to try things, you're going to see how things make how they come, how they are viewed before your eyes, what happens if you do XYZ? Sure, no, that makes sense. 
kind of on a on a base level. I think that makes a lot of sense. Ten years ago, so I met you probably twelve years ago, and I remember. I don't think that I realized that you were struggling with what you were going to do. I remember you struggling in the same way we all were with how you were going to going to make a living, which I think are aren't always you know the same. Same thing, for sure. Um, but I I remember you were you were making one and or two documentaries, and I remember how brutal the grants process was for you. <laughs> That's true. Um, and and simultaneously, you were also shooting weddings to pay the bills. Yeah, that's that's probably true. And you were shooting, and then you would shoot video, you know, for whomever needed it, you know, gigs here and there. Or you shot a fashion show thing that happened in Austin and a bunch of stuff. And then I remember that you one day just said, I'm like getting rid of all my video, like my video equipment. I'm done. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what it was that, that caused you to shift? Well, you know, I think it was around the same moment that I was trying to describe earlier. Um, I, I think, I don't know if I'm, I'm making this up, but, but I, but what I believe happened was that there was really some extra pressure on the idea of earning a, a living after, um, Fields was born, you know, my oldest son. And I remember thinking, you know, this is so hard. This, you know, the keeping up with video is so difficult. It's, I, I guess I was feeling like it really didn't s- suit my attention span. Frankly, it, it was, as you were saying with the grant process, something that, you know, you would assemble a board and then you would you know, write a long proposal and then hope to get, you know, your, your, you know, just your planning stage funded and that might take a year and then your production would be like another grant cycle and maybe that would be piecemealed together with a, with a variety of grants and, and then you would try to get your finishing funds on another. And so even if you were successful at, at that type of work, it might be, an arc of time that at the very best might be three years for a project. Yeah. Um, and I felt like there was this, it, I, I guess I just thought, well, I can't, I can't do everything. Like I can't do everything well fast enough. And I used to think, well, eventually I'll, I'll kind of get there with all of these things at once. But I decided, I guess that was just sort of a symbolic, um, uh, representation of the decision that I had had made, you know, just to make it real, I was like, "Well, if I'm serious about this decision to to really focus on photography, then I don't. I, I, I'm giving I'm giving this up. I'm giving up keep maintaining good equipment. I'm giving up trying to to you know keep up with with video, which at that time was constantly changing. I guess it still is, um, but it seeming it seemed to be at a pace that was even, um, more rapid than, than digital photography, which was really just kind of emerging almost at that time, I feel like, or becoming really viable at an affordable price point. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it was, I guess it was a combination of being generally kind of exhausted by the process that I'm describing for documentary pieces, uh, recognizing that I needed to, uh, to earn a better living to support my family, um, and that the that long protracted process of, of getting grants and then doing production just really didn't suit my personality. I, I'm I'm more like the type of person that that would could do three projects in a week, not one project in three years. Right. So. Right. I think um, many photographers start not start with wedding photography because some people do that forever but i but it's very it's a very common path for photographers to shoot weddings at least at some point in their career but you've so you you did you were working weddings like crazy and that was you less than a decade ago and you went from there to books 
working within Austin and then New York and then L.A. and now international, you've shot former presidents. I should have worded that differently. <laughs> you photographed former presidents. You won a James Beard Award. You've co-authored books. That is a very that to me like that is that is the creative American dream. What you've done, and I would love to hear a little bit about that journey, about how you go from wedding photographer to shooting for Cadillac and Men's Health and, you know, you photographed, was it George Bush Sr.? Yes. Mm -hmm. How does, how does that happen? Well, um, first I'll I'll say I, I probably, in making that shift from video and thinking about like how I would make a living, um, with, um, with stills, um, I guess I was, well, let me back up and say that I had really had a great time when I was in grad school, um, running a, a food magazine that with a friend of mine called La Cocinita. And at the time when I was feeling like, gosh, this video is really kind of exhausting. I, I was missing these these uh, stories that, and mostly the joy of running that magazine was frankly doing photos for it, because um, that was the more the most creative part. The other parts were, you know, selling ads for it, you know, hustling art together. The design was was compelling usually, but it had to happen in such a compressed period of time that it was usually like two or three sleepless days in a row before we went to press, which had its own sort of excitement about it, but. Um, the, the main part that I really enjoyed was doing photos. And so, um, when I was thinking that, that video might not be the right path for me, I, I thought back fondly of these stories that were, that were food driven stories that, that were of the, of the kind that we were doing for this little magazine in Albuquerque. And I thought, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I felt like it was something that I, had a affinity for, and I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll kind of revisit that, that path, uh, in that past and, and try some, you know, doing some stories that are like this. At that time, I was actually, um, interested in, in writing and photography. And I thought, this is how, th- this is how I'll do this is that I can, um, I can write pretty well. And I, I'm a pretty good photographer. I thought, well, I'm not maybe great at, at either of these things, but combined, maybe that will give me kind of an edge because I'll be able to do both of them. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of thought, saw that as like my in. And I, I pitched a few stories to a, a Texas magazine called Texas Co-op Power. I think that I think the first story that I did it was a food story and it was on a, um, a family out in Blumenthal, which is close to Fredericksburg and a really cute family, maybe three kids, all like blonde haired kids. And they lived this sort of idyllic seeming life with the orchard in their backyard. And they had this roadside stand and the, the couple that ran it, um, were really great people. And I loved connecting with them and learning all about the process of, growing peaches and the dangers of peaches freezing and just kind of their whole world was really interesting. So I I wrote my first like kind of food story and shot this food story for, for Texas co-op power. And it ended up being a a cover story for them. And, um, following that, I, I got connected with, um, edible Austin, which was just, just starting, um, here. And that was, really very similar to the the publication that I was helping to run in, in Albuquerque. And um, so between the two of those those um, magazines, I started to do a little bit of, of paid work. <laughs> um, I also at the same time had made a concerted effort just to shoot as much as I possibly could, whether I was being paid or not. And, and I thought, you know, I, I don't know what else this will yield, but it'll be work that I that I'm drawn toward and that I feel, you know, has merit to photograph. And, and I, th- and I think if I'm drawn toward it, then I can do it well. And so I really like set about kind of trying to be a, a bit more 
concerted in what I was doing. And I thought any time that I can, through any means, I'm just going to shoot as much material that I find interesting. And I really, I did that for maybe two years and maybe, maybe 70% of it was very little pay, like being paid a hundred and fifty dollars for you know doing a shoot or something to to no pay just something I would do just because I knew someone and they were doing a pig roast in their backyard or something that I so would were you working help. weddings at the same time how are you paying bills at this point yeah so so um there were weddings i I probably actually only i I doubt I would have ever shot more than probably fifteen weddings ever but but then I, of course I wasn't really making much <laughs> much money so it was probably a a fairly substantial chunk of, of income. I still had, um, just occasional other still jobs that were kind of random. Like if, I don't know, like a, a company would call and ask me to take like a, a group picture. I might do like holiday pictures for someone. I was doing, um, I was doing real estate and architectural photography for a while, even though I'm not really was ever much of a, of a architectural photographer, but for a time I was doing like real realtor headshots. I had like a, a good, uh, <laughs> right, I forgot about that. Yeah. I had a good, a good gig for, uh, with that for, and the cheerleaders at that school, that one <laughs> <time>. <laughs> which was actually paid. Let's just be clear. That one was a paid gig. That's true. Yeah. It, everything was really piecemeal like that yeah. uh, for, for a period of at least, two or three years, I remember thinking, God, every single job that I get is like a brand new experience. Like I've never done this yeah. job before, even though there have been 50 jobs before that. It was always something totally new. Yeah. And then Which, I threw that knitting book at you like yeah, a then, decade ago. So all of a yeah, sudden it was a teen book. So right. all of a sudden you're dealing with both teenagers and knitwear. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was like that. It was like that random to me. It was like, well, okay, that seems that seems exactly right. A, a teen knitting book, but it sounds like that that must have in part been something that you love. I mean, that sounds like the same sort of philosophy that your entire career is based on, and how you get to explore all of these worlds now for money. But at that time, yeah, yeah, you're working towards no, it, right? No, it's true. Uh, I mean, I think they're it's um, well. If you're just doing as as I was in, in most of these these things that I'm explaining, um, that were the kind of money jobs, you know, not even though there weren't that much money jobs, but um, for those money jobs, that can be I think more. You, you just never maybe get really good at something if you're just doing it once and then you don't do it again. Um, that's the only downside I think to that. I know what you mean in spirit. Like if it's new, it's exciting. But at the same time, it, it might be so different. You have really, over the past, I don't know, handful of years, specialized, began specializing in food. I mean, you referenced before that that's sort of where you started. But I feel like there are less and less um, other subjects for you and more and more food. And your food photography is just gorgeous and award-winning. Um, and I'm curious to know, what is it about food that you find that draws you to it, that draws you to the visual aspect of it? Where, what about it sort of feeds that creative fire within? Sure. Um, well, in part, it's the um, inherent story structure that exists there because you have most often with with most foods, you have a lot of process involved with it. And if you take it back, you know, to where it's grown or where it grows, um, you know, you've got a harvest of some kind and that could be someone picking some chilies or harvesting oysters. And you have like all this activity of people out in the world doing something. And, and that's really compelling to me. Um, and I love the process of that um, that harvested thing, then going through a cooking process, and it's just naturally kind of has a 
it has a beginning and it has kind of an end to it. And, and I like that because it's a short story, which again, you know, kind of suits my attention span. We're not talking about like planting a, a grape seed so it will flourish into a vine like seven years later and yield a, a, a bottle of wine. I mean, the stories that, that I would get to tell could be as quickly as like someone goes out and harvests something. If it went through this whole, you know, whole circle of, of story could go from where it's being harvested in a field, say, to taken to a, you know, rinsed off, taken to a kitchen, prepared, combined with other ingredients, cooked, and then it has this kind of natural finish of the thing that you're eating. And so that's compelling. Um, I think it's what's compelling too, to go back to what I was saying earlier, is that passion that people feel about it on, you know, perhaps on all stages of that, there could be one person or it might just be the person who takes great pride, like the family that I was referencing, um, earlier near Fredericksburg that takes this great pride in producing these amazing peaches or the person that might receive that at a restaurant. That's maybe a pastry chef who has devoted their adult life to making delicious pastries and all the experimentations that, that go on with that and the passion that drives them on that end. So it's, um, those are, you know, two parts at least of, of what draws me, um, draws me to food, I guess. Do you think that your photographs would look any different if you were to walk on to walk into the kitchen or walk onto the set and take a photo of, you know, that beautiful apple pie versus if before you walked onto that set, you sat down with the baker and heard about how, you know, their life story led up to that actual pie since that part of the process seems to be so, um, so much part of your work, I'm wondering if it would actually be reflected in it, if that, if that aspect of the process was, was extracted. Well, um, it would depend. It would depend on the type of shoot, but I know what you're getting at. Um, I, I find that when you're, particularly if I'm approaching a subject that I don't know very much about, it kind of can go both ways. Um, so, let's see if it's a, if it's something that I've never experienced before, a type of food that I'm unfamiliar with, or, you know, let's say, let's say it's not an apple pie. Of course I know what an apple pie is, but let's say it's like, um, uh, oh gosh, what? So some, let's say it's some type of, of dessert where there's like a crust on top. Right. And I might not know exactly how it's constructed. So I, in order to represent what it is, I, I need to understand fully, like, how is this made or like, what is this supposed to look like? I think about it more in terms of, you know, what, what is it about this thing that is definitive of what it is and how would I reveal that? Mm-hmm. And I, I keep that in mind with like something that c- comes to mind is like, cause I was just sending a, a photo of a, of a fish earlier today, but it's like, if this is a really flaky fish and it was in this case, I think it was like pan fried or seared or something. Um, and you can't really appreciate what that fish is, like what the nature of that fish is and, until you like pull a little bit of the side of it off and see how flaky that fish is because that, that like striation of the of that flesh is kind of what's definitive of that type of fish. Um, I think about those sorts of things a lot. If it's in order to better reveal what it is that I'm taking a photo of so that you can really tell the story of that thing more completely in a photo. Um, if it were a, a story that included, you know, as part of its focus, this person, then yeah, I think that, I think that knowing them a little bit and knowing and trying as best you can to like kind of capture a little bit of their essence in a way that feels true to them is always a goal. You know, sometimes you just walk in and and you're tasked with just taking a picture of this pie, but sometimes and very often you're, um, a, a typical formula might be a portrait, a food item, maybe, um, some photo that would show a sense of place, say, if it's like an editorial piece, 
those that's kind of usually the the triple set that you're asked to do. So it's like, what does this restaurant or bakery look like? What is the bait? You know, get a sense of the baker, like with a conscious portrait or um, them just working and being themselves and try to capture a little bit of their essence and then some things that they actually make. You wrote or you said in an article I read somewhere um, that writing for you is quite painful. And (laughs) is the process that you've just described does that help for you to be able to tell the story th- visually so that you can avoid the writing process? Are you, do you feel like this whole process has given you the ability to show us the story versus tell us? Um, yeah, to a great degree. I mean, I think about um, photography as kind of being a, a cheat, like a, you know, as I was describing it before. But in this case, I'm meaning um, because I first thought, I, even from maybe let's say maybe lower school certainly by middle school I had this thought that I might be a writer someday I don't know why but did you write a lot as a child I did I I wrote a lot I um it was something that I seemed to excel at at school and um I always got you know great feedback from teachers I took creative writing classes in college this type of thing It, it seemed like a very difficult type of um career to pursue as a you know creative writer it's like well where do you start there you just kind of have to jump in and i guess do it um you know doing doing a path of journalism didn't really have much appeal to me um but i did as i was saying earlier you know do a little bit of um of writing and photography uh, early on actually the the first kind of um pairing of those things that I did was for a college newspaper and I, I did like adventure travel stories. And then after college, I, I lived in Costa Rica for a few years and I did that there. I would do like, I would go out. It was actually maybe one of the, the best sort of jobs that I ever had. It was, a, I was working as a freelance person, but I would go on some adventure for a couple of days. I would go like kayak or river for a couple of days or um, hike a uh, hike a, a mountain, or go ex- like go see a volcano, or <laughs> really go scuba diving. And once I did like a five day scuba diving uh, a trip on a liveaboard, uh, all these amazing things that I wanted to do. And then I would come back and turn in my film and and write stories. I kind of got sidetracked there. I don't know what are we talking about. I think that you're just talking about <laughs> curiosity and following, like and becoming inspired. Um, we started talking uh, about writing, but I think that okay. it it led you. It sounds like it led it led you to still capturing those images visually as right. well. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. So it, it does. It takes forever. It takes forever to write. It and you know, it's if you, brutal. If, it's brutal. It's terrible. It, I mean, it would it would take me all week to write a story. I actually foolishly did this recently. I'd, um, I'd been hired, um, gosh, when was this? I guess this was in November. And this is the first story that I've written probably in four years. But I had the opportunity to go to Budapest and do a story for Ritz-Carlton magazine. And They wanted uh, you to write and photograph for it? Yeah, and they wanted me to write, write it as well. And it, it was so counter to the experience that I'd had with other you know, larger magazines where, you know, straight out the gate when I was making that, that changeover that I was describing and I'd done those pieces for Texas Co-op Power, that those were like kind of out of the norm because it's a smaller paper, there are smaller magazine, uh, and they were open to me doing that. But when I approached magazines like Texas Monthly, um, they were, they, kind of followed the general rule that most magazines do, which is no one can do both of these things well, um, and at least not simultaneously. Um, and so I, I just, I, at first I kind of bucked that for a little bit, but then I was like, well, all right, I'm, I can just sort of tell these, tell these stories with photos alone. Um, and so it was a surprise to me to get this solicitation to do a story as well. And, and I guess it had something to do with the remoteness of the, of the, um, of the trip. Yeah. Well, just that it's in Budapest. Um, but I think also they just, they liked the idea of this being a photographer's story. Like, 
as I guess the construct of it was like, it's my like experience there as like a, a, a normal traveler. Like I'm just actually literally taking a, a vacation and then I'm writing, writing up my experience after that and turning in my snapshots almost. Um, in, in reality it was more complicated than that, but all this to say that it probably took me a week to write it at least. Like if I would get up early and it would take me like four hours and I would get like another hundred words. It was awful. How many words did you have to turn in? I think it was maybe 1,200 words or something like that in the end. Yeah. yeah. That, I know. Fun. It takes me, it could take me a whole day to write 500 words sometimes. It just depends. It, it depends also if I'm, I don't know if the mood is right, if using in the mood no, or if no. the energy is right or if the, like I can just tell if the vibe's there or not. Right. Does that happen yeah. with you? Yeah, I think you either have the flow or you don't. Yeah. You talked about writing as a kid. Do you, with your boys, do you encourage them to write or to be creative in any way? Yeah, I mean, so much of what, I'm trying to think of what, so so much of verbally, I think we do all the time. I think that that's just sort of, I think there's a lot of wordplay around the house and just um, that sort of, Joking is kind of part of our everyday life. Your witty banter. Yes. That the Horton family is known for. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, and, you know, there's so much that happens that's related to school that it's hard to put put more on top of that. Sure. Although, you know, Fields uh, particularly is such an avid reader. Like, he, he just it loves exploring like that. Um, and other than that, it's probably like a lot of building of things. Um, whether it's certainly throughout the, the lives of the kid, there's probably of both the kids. There's been many hundreds of hours playing with Legos and constructing things like that. You also always have like the stockpile of wood that follows you from <laughs> wherever you go, um, in both the homes that you've owned and in your workshop that you have. I've seen you just build things with them in general, like a makeshift little house or whatever. Yeah, I do love wood. Um, I, I have tried, I've tried to, <laughs> in more recent years, to, to stick with like designing stuff more and like conceiving of them and figuring that part out and getting a drawing together or being able to con- convey that to someone else just because it, it requires so much time. You're busy. Like you have to outsource now. That's right. So, but I, I'm still really gratified by, you know, imagining something that I would want and then having someone else actually execute that. <laughs> so for years you had a at home studio True. and just recently you've bought a big studio space how does how if at all has that affected your work life balance is it easier not being at home working or is it harder because you're not at home also physically at home as much yeah it's a good question um i don't know i don't know yet i i feel like and it's it's too early to tell in a way because we just moved into the new studio in january in the middle of january so here we are you know, not too many months following. And there was so much work that, that frankly, it's continued since just that's involved with improving the space, fixing this and that. So at least for now, there's been so much energy put into the creation of it that, um, then that, that can be draining in some ways, although it can be very fulfilling as well. It, it will be more interesting to see like where where I am once there's once that's kind of at a baseline like hey this is where you work not this is where you're constantly making you know thirty decisions on construction or oh, right. you know a day also um, but and I don't know if this is tied to that or not but but probably just the the pressure of you know as you know we renovated a house and studio like at the same time which is a, just a terrible idea it's a terrible idea <laughs> yeah. um, but, but they look so good yeah they've, they've turned out well but man I wouldn't do it again 
And but, we should sidebar that you have the most phenomenal partner in your wife. It's true. Who has helped level out this balance by giving all of her time to family time to fully support both of these like ventures. That's true. Yeah, she's amazing. Carry on. I just had to give Reagan props really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, thank you. And, um, but yeah, it, I, th- I think at least in the last maybe really just maybe handful of weeks, um, we're kind of emerging from this place of, of being like totally um, having to be wrapped up in all the construction things and details and have kind of got got past some of the, the at least the majority of the push on this building. And um, I've been more concerted with, with trying to set, you know, boundaries with, with having a better work-life balance and, and being as present as I can be at home. Um, and yeah, it, it is both good and bad to, to, to have your work, um, place a little bit removed. Now, bear in mind, this is not like it's 20 minutes away. It's, it's like seven minutes away. So it's easy enough to get there. Um, it, it can, it can be so convenient to be able to go up and just do something you have to do like for literally for five minutes. And I'm, I can miss that sometimes. This just happened. Yeah. Saturday, I think, where I, or I had to send a file to someone and then I set it on send. And then I came home and I was like, great, I'm done for the weekend. And then I realized later because I didn't get a, a sent confirmation that something went wrong. So I had to like go back to the office. Which, oh, right. Instead of just running upstairs. Instead of just running upstairs. So it can be nice to feel separated at once, but really the, the nature of, um, of photography is that you're, you have to be pretty available um, most of the time. So I don't know. Maybe ask me again in another year. I, th- I think overall quality of life higher because the space itself is so much better. How, how that plays in with the work-life balance, I'm not entirely sure of yet. We before I wrap up, we we spent a lot of time talking about food photography. I wanted to touch oh, right. just a little bit on um, your photography that you've done of actual people, and I was wondering if when you shoot people, especially if they're well known people, you did the cover of a. Didn't you do the James Carville cover too? Yes. You shot, mm-hmm. If you shoot something like that with he and his wife, or you know, we we mentioned the bushes earlier. Are you able to still work with the same process as you would, you know, with a baker we referenced earlier, where even though the subject is the pie or whatever it is, you're sort of in a way interviewing the maker of it. But when the maker, I mean, with the, when the subject is the actual thing, person being that you are photographing, do you still try and get a little bit of information about them from them? Do you try to engage in conversation or is there... Have they set those like hard boundaries, especially when they're celebrities, that that is, you know, not going to happen? Well, I think it can go both ways. It's really dependent on the on the situation. And I can't say that I have, you know, 50 examples of that. that well, I can the pull two from. that I listed. But yeah, those two. yeah, yeah, even those. Um, yeah. And so those are polar opposites, in fact, in some ways. So, for instance, with... Um, Photographing um, George and Barbara Bush, that was wow. That uh, that had to be done in like less than five minutes, oh, wow. um, and so we had to really choose exactly where where we we're going to set up. It was uh, my assistant um, Sean and I. Remind me what this was for. Was it for uh, a magazine? This, yeah, this was actually for a Garden and Gun piece, and it was a profile of Houston and. It involved various restaurants and museums and, um, right. and this okay. sort of thing, as well as um, influential people that were kind of like represented the character of the city. So um, anyway, you know, we had to make a special trip to go back because they're, they're, the Bush's schedule is like so difficult um, and, and tight. It's like, no, it can't be either any of these four days when we're going to already be in Houston. It has to be like the next Monday. So we have to dr- drive back down expressly for this. It's like, okay. And then we 
you know, have a contact from um, their handler essentially who's like, okay, the butchers are doing this, you know, we're on schedule for this. Okay, great. Okay, now it looks like they're going to be delayed. You know, can you, you know, wait before you come to the house? Yes. Um, And so then we get there um, and we really have maybe, maybe less than, certainly less than 10 minutes to, um, to figure out exactly how it's going to be framed. And, you know, as usual, it involved like moving a piece of furniture into another place, kind of getting things out of the way, kind of setting a little bit of a scene. And we, we came to realize just in, in speaking with the handler that, um, that George Bush is relatively fragile, actually, uh, physically. Mm. And, um, and so the, the thought was, Hey, you know, you're only going to have a couple of minutes and you're only going to have one location. Uh, because first he was like, would you like to be inside or outside? And I said, well, maybe we could start inside because it's mm. warm, but, but maybe then we can go outside. No, that's not going to happen. You yeah, know, quick and dirty, get it done. So it's like, okay, so you'd really choose your whole frame. And in this case had, we had no time, um, to, to really communicate with, with George and Barbara, but they're professionals at this, you know, they're, they're fantastic. And so they, they, uh, wheeled George in and sat him on, on the stoop. And then Barbara was quite spry and she came and joined and, and they had their dogs and stuff with them. We were, I was able to, to speak a little bit with Barbara afterwards and she was really funny. Um, and engaging, but I didn't have that opportunity to to really be with them before, and I didn't know it, it could be that she would have just scooted out of the room. Um, it could have gone either way, but she was right. kind of a character, and she hung out for a minute and spoke. But it didn't really inf- necessarily inform um, how we were going to go. How about you shot the photo, right? It was more circumstance. What about with yeah. James Carville? With James Carville, um, that was a, a really st- sort of a strange situation. Um, was this the cover of the book that he wrote with his wife? That's right. Um, and yes, and so Mary was really um, very uh, approachable, and she was also you know an interesting character, just as you would expect her to be. And I got to speak with her a good bit, but but James seemed very um, kind of. Uh, distracted and, and just kind of like kind of ADD really. Like Mm. he was, he was just kind of moving all over the place and couldn't really sit still. And he would, he would like the, when, when I was just before I was going to go take his photo, um, he decided to go on a run. So he comes, (laughs) what do you mean? He he just goes on a run. Just hold on for a second. Does whatever. Yeah. He does whatever he wants Uh. to do at the moment. So he comes back and he's like, just sweating sweating. he's sweating profusely you know and then he like goes and takes a shower and but he still like has that you know residual heat or whatever you have did that feel like an utter disregard for your time or it didn't matter because (laughs) you were being paid for the time anyway it it, it didn't really matter it just seemed counterproductive I was just like oh man um (laughs) And, and what so is that, what does Mary say while this is happening? And this, by the way, is Mary Madeline, his his wife, and they're very entertaining because they have absolute opposite political views, but they're both political speakers. Right. Um, she, you know, she's pretty easygoing. She was probably like, uh, she was probably drinking a drink and like smoking a cigarette and just sort of like kind Used of to rolling it. her eyes a little bit. Yeah. Um, but um. Which, yeah, by the way, I, is probably why their marriage works, <laughs> that <laughs> right. dynamic. Right. But they're both very interesting, you know, engaging people. But I actually spent a good bit of time there because they had um, – but it was really kind of like after the photo because James really didn't kind of come in. He just kind of showed up and he was – you know, he was like a kid. Like he just didn't didn't want to stand still. He was kind of like the first – thing he said was like okay are we, are we done you know are we done yeah. is this good and do you think he's uncomfortable being it. in front of the camera maybe that's it yeah. yeah i think he just you know if you put those two experiences side to side mm-hmm. and just look at them through a creative lens do they feel different creatively for you like if you were to look at both of the photographs the final photographs for both of those would would they feel different to you would you Maybe you have more pride in one or the other, or maybe they just, you have more sense memory with one, or maybe it just felt, you felt it more, if that makes sense. Or or no, does it, is that just irrelevant? Well, you know, when you walk into a shoot like that, both of those were 
very low production value shoots. You know, I just had one assistant. So there's not a lot of resources there. You know, it's not like I didn't have, in other words, like I didn't have a hair and makeup person or a wardrobe person for either of those shoots. And so you're kind of, you're kind of at the mercy of just what's going to happen. So the best you could do is like arrange furniture, you know, open up a space, maybe open a curtain as we did in the bushes case. And then with the case of, um, um, with James and Mary, it was, it was a challenge. You know, I, I, uh, there was not an art director there either. So, you know, I'm trying to make decisions of, of, um, you know, what James should wear. He's like, he, he was, I think he was going to at first wear like an LSU cap and like a Mm t-shirt. And I was like, for the cover of his book. Yeah. I was like, no, you you know, let's move towards this being, you know, you know, maybe you should wear this. What are some options? Anyway, like you're, you're to some degree, you're kind of dealt what you're dealt. And I felt like it was probably, um, the, the Bush, photo came together more organically. Mm-hmm. Um, just like anything, sometimes things are, you know, they happen and they're more fluid. Other times you just have to kind of hammer at them. So much about photography is, is problem solving. And so you just try to break it down into its, its parts for a shoot, for a shot like that, when there's a real specific purpose mm-hmm. and think about like, you know, how you can, if not make it great, at least make it better. Um, and, you know, that might be like just blocking light or trying to reflect something here or put something in the background here or just, you know, deal with the way that someone's holding their hand or whatever. Like try to pay attention to all those little details that collectively make up the mood of a, of a photo. So it was so. less about the experience and more about just the materials. Basically. I guess the materials yeah, guess being so. the people, too, but what you had to work with. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't I don't know that they seem wildly different except that one just happened to to come together in my mind yeah. much more easily. Yeah. Well, Jody, um, thank you so much for talking to me about the craft of photography today. It has been great, my friend. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Jody Horton's photography can be found on his website and by following him on Instagram. For links and other info, please check out this episode's show notes page at vickihowell.com/craftish. Craftish is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. And if you like this podcast, please make sure you're subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud so that you don't miss an episode. And we'd also love it if you'd leave us a comment, rating, or review. And thank you so much to those of you who already have. Your kind words have been the fuel to feed the production of this show. We truly appreciate it. Tune into the next episode of Craftish with my guest, the iconic British knitwear designer and entrepreneur, Erica Knight. That'll go live on Tuesday. Until next time, take time to make something. Cultivate your craft. I promise you'll feel better for it. Breathe in, craft out.